This is the SBI Show. Hello, everybody. I'm Ivis Scalarse, and it is Tuesday. We're only a few days away from the moment that so many of you have been waiting for, the start, the official start of the 2020 MLS season. Now, MLS teams began the year last week with CONCACAF Champions League, but the actual regular season kicks off this weekend on Saturday, and there'll be plenty to talk about regarding the new season all 26 teams and everything in the storylines that there are to follow in the upcoming episodes of the SBI show. I am actually going to drop a few episodes this week uh, to preview the upcoming season. Uh, there's just so much to get to that trying to jam it all into one or two episodes doesn't really do it justice. And uh, it's part of the reason why we didn't have an episode at the end of last week, just gearing up for what will be a very, very busy week. Uh, with the SBI show, and, and this episode is kind of a, a, a cleanup episode to touch on some of the topics that, that we need to get to before we go into full MLS preview mode. And I know, again, not everyone's into MLS, not all American soccer fans follow MLS closely, so for those of you who are curious about MLS and, and or, or who aren't curious about MLS or who don't want to hear about MLS and want to hear about the U.S. national team, Americans abroad, we'll have that covered in this episode. There'll definitely be topics to, to discuss on those fronts, so for those of you who hear MLS and hear, oh, we're going to talk MLS and think, ah, I don't really, I'm not all that interested in MLS. Well, listen, folks, there's something for everybody. But for those of you who are interested in MLS, we'll have plenty to talk about today on this episode and much more to talk about in the upcoming episodes, which will include an Eastern Conference preview, a Western Conference preview, and then an overall preview looking at the teams to beat. The people, the players most likely to win awards, the players, the newcomers to watch, and all the storylines that you're going to want to keep an eye on heading into the new season. We'll start things off talking CONCACAF Champions League. And yes, the MLS teams began their campaign in the knockout rounds last week, and it was a bit a bit of a disappointing mix of results uh, for the five MLS teams that took part. And only one of them was able to come away with a first leg victory. All five teams began on the road uh, in their series, and only one of them, New York City FC, was able to come away victorious. And I had to say, that overall, the results, I wouldn't call all that surprising when you, when you consider the challenges that teams have, uh, the opponents they were facing. Uh, now, does that mean it's the, the results weren't disappointing? Yes, in some cases, they definitely were disappointing, and we have to start with LAFC who took on Club Leon in the first leg in down in Mexico. And, and as we know, LAFC, uh, they're coming off the best regular season in MLS history. They are, for my money, the strongest team in MLS. And there were a lot of expectations about them coming into this competition. But when it comes down to it, it was still going to always be a case of an MLS team, all, all the MLS teams, starting their seasons and these games being the first official matches of the year for them. And they're going up against teams who are six to seven matches into their new seasons, into the 2020 campaigns. And LAFC had the unfortunate uh, draw of, of of being drawn in with Club León, a, a Mexican team that's actually playing really well in Liga Mekis uh, right now. They're, they're one of the better M uh, Mexican teams in the new season down in Mexico. So you have, you know, the, the top MLS team gets the toughest draw um, of the uh, of of the MLS teams of all when you look at all five MLS teams and who they have to face, LAFC by far the toughest challenge right off the bat. And you know you can definitely make it. You can definitely say that eh, you know that's an excuse and it, it, th this is all excuses. At the end of the day, LAFC still has to perform, and that's true. At the end of the day, no one's gonna care 
uh, six months from now, even a year from now, five years from now, no one's going to care about the the circumstances as to why LAFC uh, ends up not getting past Leon in this tournament. What matters is performing. And LAFC, they knew coming into this into this uh, matchup that the first leg was was everything. And it, it was really a case of surviving the first leg and limiting damage in the first leg. You were going to go up against a, a, a very good informed Mexican team playing at home that was going to try to take you out in the first leg. And you know what? LAFC had some chances. LAFC weathered a, a first half storm because I tell you what, Club Leon was all over them in the first half. They were dominant and they really could have put up a handful of goals in the first half. LAFC weathered that. They missed their own. They missed their own golden chance. Brian Rodriguez had a, had a great look at an open net that he missed wide on. But then the second half, the turnover, Mohamed El Munir with the turnover in the back. Leon pounces and they get that vital insurance goal to come away with a 2-0 victory in the first leg. Now LAFC returns home. Uh, they have no away goal. They have to score at least two goals to tie things up. And if they win 3-0, then okay, again, they advance. And that's just a tall, tall order. And, you know, you can definitely point to uh, the mistakes that were made and, and the way the team looked. The team looked sloppy. And there's no there's no two ways about it. They look sloppy. But, again, when it comes down to it, they are in – they're essentially in preseason mode still. And anyone who's watched MLS over the years, they know, generally speaking, the beginning of the season, it's pretty rough. The, the, the quality of play is very rough in the beginning parts of the season. These teams coming into the year are not sharp. And it takes some matches to get – to really, really find that rhythm and really, really find that that form that really tells you where teams are. And right now, LAFC, as good as they are, and I still, for my money, I think they're going to win the whole thing. I think they're going to, they could shatter their own record for points in a season. As much as I believe that, as much as I think this is a very strong team, um, they, you know, even even with all that, to expect them to come in on day one and be sharp and be mistake-free, you know that I think that was always a tall, a tall order. That being said, you still can't make these mistakes. You still can't uh, do what they did. And I'm sure Bob Bradley, if he had hair, he would have pulled it out because he specifically told his team, "We have to avoid mistakes. We can't give any goals away to this team because they're good enough. They'll take, they'll take goals. You don't need to give them goals." And that's what they did. They gave Leon that vital second goal at the end of that match and. You can definitely point to the defense and say, oh, well, look, LAFC's defense is shaky. When it comes down to it, defenses in general, when you're talking about teams, uh, as they're as they're progressing through their preseasons and, and sharpening things up and getting ready for the new campaigns, defense is always a, is always the slower of the two. The defense, the the organization and the structure of defending as a group it, it takes a little bit longer to 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 kind of to get it get it where you want it to be and we saw this across the board with all the MLS teams defensively there wasn't a lot of great defending from the MLS teams i mean there's no two ways about it and and LAFC was a victim of that and you can clearly point to hey look they traded Walker Zimmerman away maybe if they don't trade Walker Zimmerman away things are better you could definitely say that you could definitely point to that and say hey look Dayan Dayan Yakovic is not Walker Zimmerman, not by a long shot. Having said that, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, if Walker Zimmerman's there, they win this game. I, I, I don't happen to believe that at all. I don't think I don't think him being there changes the outcome necessarily. I mean, of course, could he have been on a set piece and gotten them a goal? You can, you know, you, you'll never know. But for me, 
that wasn't the difference. That wasn't the that wasn't why they lost. They lost because they made some mistakes. They didn't finish their chances, and and they were sloppy. They were sloppy. And Leon, credit to Leon. Let's give these teams. You know, I, I feel like MLS fans never want to give Mexican teams credit for being good. And when it comes down to it, Club Leon is a good team. They're a good team, and uh, you know they're in that. This was, I believe, it was Leon's seventh match of the year. Of the they, they played six matches in Liga Mekis. Uh, and they came in on very good form. And they played an LAFC team that had not played a single official match this year yet. And it showed. It showed in that first half. Uh, and the unfortunate thing for LAFC is that what we've seen in the past is MLS teams benefit when they can get a bit of a softer first matchup, right? Now, and again, this is not a knock on New York City FC because they don't pick their opponent. But if LEFC had played sent uh, if they had played the NYC NYCFC's opponent in the first match if they had played Santa Clara in their first matchup I I would bet all the money that I have which isn't much but I would bet all the money that I have LAFC would smoke Santa Clara but again does that mean NYCFC goes down to Mexico and loses to Club Leon not necessarily, because again, it comes down to avoiding mistakes. It comes down to eliminating those mistakes and making sure the first leg is manageable. That was that was clearly that was clearly the task for LAFC, and they didn't come through with it. Does it mean NYCFC couldn't have gone down to to Mexico and done it? Uh, we, we we don't know, but I do. Th- I, I firmly believe though, LAFC. If they if they were able to get out of the first round of the uh, the first knockout round of this competition and get some games under their belt, then they can ha- they could have had that momentum rolling into the later rounds of the tournament and really had a chance in this Champions League. But right now, the way things stand for them after that first leg, it's just really tough to see them turning around now. And erasing that in the second leg. As good as LAFC is, as, as much as I see LAFC winning everything in MLS in 2020, I don't know if I see them turning it around in the Champions League. Now, LAFC was actually the only MLS team in the Champions League to suffer a loss in the first leg. And that's pretty good news for MLS. But some of these performances in the first leg, I would say, were still somewhat disappointing. Uh, obviously, going on the road and getting a draw is still pretty good. It's still pretty good. But consider Montreal. Montreal goes down to Saprissa. They jump out to a 2-0 lead. Thierry Henry had his team looking pretty good there. And and then to to blow, to blow squander that two-goal lead and to have to settle for a 2-2 draw, uh, if you're Thierry Henry, you have to be seriously disappointed there because uh, it's not easy to go down to, to Saprissa and get a result. It isn't easy, but... They had they had it they had a chance to get the win and and the win there would have, would have definitely made a difference there. Uh, I still like Montreal's chances in 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 the series, but do I see Montreal doing much more beyond that? Do I see them going on a run like they did a few years ago when they got to the Champions League final? I wouldn't say that uh, by any means. I think it's going to be a bit of a rough year uh, for Montreal in MLS. Uh, but there were some encouraging signs about the kind of attack. The kind of the kind of style of of, of soccer that that Montreal is going to play under Thierry Henry, they're gonna they're gonna be an attack minded team. They're gonna be a fun team to watch. And obviously, with with Nacho Piatti leaving, you wondered, you know, how how will they make up for that? How will they? Where will the goals come from? Where will, where will the chances come from? But I tell you what, Montreal, I think they're they're going to be a pretty good team to watch. They're going to be a fun team to watch. But I don't know 
if they have enough on that roster to be a, a competitive playoff team. That that's that's going to be the task for, for Henri. Now, if Henri can make them a playoff team, then it shows that he learned something from his first managerial job, his first head coaching job uh, in France with Monaco, which obviously was a, a disaster uh, for him. But again, I've I've said for a long time now that that I think I think Henri is a very a highly intelligent guy who who could be an excellent coach and it didn't work out for him in Monaco but if if he can make it work in Montreal then it it maybe it'll show that that he is progressing and that he is developing as a coach because he's still young he's still young I mean it, it, it just it feels like just yesterday he was he was putting in goals for for the Red Bulls uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens with Montreal. Uh, the the team, the MLS team that is in the best shape, as I, I mentioned earlier, New York City FC. Uh, they put five on Santa Clarita, uh, f- uh, five on the uh, Costa Rican side. And, and to be fair, Santa Clara is having a, a an abysmal season down in Costa Rica. It's one of those cases where a team qualifies for a tournament, but they they then go into the tournament. And they're just not in a good place. And right now. NYCFC. Now they gave up three goals, and you don't like to see that, right? But as I noted, it's uh, you know defensively sometimes it's not you know it, it come bringing the attack or, or or getting the attack to click can 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 oftentimes be what what develops first or what sets in first. But the defensive cohesiveness can take a little bit longer, and you know when you think about it. You know, when we talked about earlier about, you know, if LAFC had played Santa Clara, you know, and if NYC, if NYCFC had played Leon, I'd tell you what, listen, if you're NYCFC and you're giving up three goals to Santa Clara, I don't even know how many goals you would have gave up to Club Leon. That's something else to think about. So, uh, but you know what? You, you you play who you play. You play the the, the team that, that you're drawn against. And NYCFC with A-Bear with the hat trick, they have to feel really good uh, heading back home to Red Bull Arena for the second leg. Uh, I'll be there for that one. It's going to, I'm sure it's going to be a very weird experience of NYCFC being the quote-unquote home team at Red Bull Arena on Wednesday. But you know what? They're in pretty good shape. And uh, it was the kind of result they wanted to have, so they wouldn't have this second, the second leg hanging over their heads. And now you're, you know, you don't want to look ahead too far. But if you're NYCFC, you have to be feeling pretty good about getting to that next round. And when you get to that next round, you're going to have a few games under your belt by that point. And then we could see something closer to uh, an NYCFC team that that can really contend and obviously the big question with them is how will Ronnie Dyla uh, affect their style the new manager how will his style uh, change them as a team and uh, you know that he has said he has made it clear that you know he's not trying to reinvent the wheel with this team and that they you know they obviously are going to be some different principles but for the most part they're still going to be an attacking team they're still going to emphasize possession but maybe in different ways and early on it's looking like you know what maybe this team is taking to Ronnie Dyla as a manager again it's early it's one game against a bad opponent but still it's promising, and we'll see what they do on Wednesday. Uh, if they can put that one away, then they head into the new uh, MLS season with a little bit of momentum. Now, last but certainly not least, regarding the Champions League, we'll talk about the two MLS teams that right now, for me, are looking like the best bets for a long run in this tournament, and that and those teams are Atlanta United and the Seattle Sounders. And Atlanta, even though they both only came away with draws in their first legs, I think 
they both showed some good qualities and they were both to be fair fa- uh, facing some good competition uh, in a pair of, of Honduran teams that that are by no means pushovers and as far as Atlanta goes uh, to come away with a 1-1 draw they, they were actually a bit fortunate uh, Brad Guzan had to make some big saves there and they, they could have actually uh, very easily lost that match but I did like some of the things we saw from them in terms of their attack and in terms of their movement. Um, Again, much like every MLS team in this competition in this first legs, uh, defensively, you're still working out some issues. Again, Miles Robinson is still out. Um, They had Mo Adams playing at fullback. Uh, It it was a bit of a mishmash of a a patchwork defense that that Frank DeBoer had to put out there. Um, But I did like some of the things I saw from the attack and uh, it's some promising stuff there from, from Atlanta. Uh, again, they're a team that they're going to rely so heavily on Miles Robinson to, to get healthy and get back in the lineup uh, with Leandro Gonzalez Perez. Uh, on you know he's moved on to Club Tijuana, and, and and Fernando Meza has stepped in for him. And look, he looks he looks pretty good for them. Uh, but you know you want to see how that defense comes together. Uh, who who takes over as the starting left back? Who wins out as the starting right back? So there's still a lot of questions about that Atlanta defense. But for me, uh, if you if you want to feel pretty good, if you're an Atlanta fan, you're feeling pretty good about what you see from Petit Martinez. Uh, obviously, uh, Frank DeBoer was on the last episode of the SBI show, and, and he talked about uh, the Petit Martinez coming into this season looking pretty good and looking like a player who really could take that next step and, and, and maybe be that 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 dominant player that um, that Atlanta expected to get when they signed him a year ago and as we all remember Pitti Martinez had his his had a rough go in the in the early goings um in in his adapting to MLS and his adapting to Atlanta United and um it it definitely feels like by what you from what you hear that he is in a much better place coming into the, his second season in MLS and that definitely bodes well for Atlanta because with all the change in Atlanta and all the turnover and losing a Nagby and Julian Gressel, you're going to need some players to take it up another notch. And and Pitti is definitely one of those players. Of course, he's not the only one. You know, Emerson Hindman, uh, you, you have Brooks Lennon coming in. You have Fernando Meza coming in for Leandro Gonzalez-Pires. So there's so many pieces, so many moving parts there. Uh, but Early on, at least after one match, it's looking promising. Atlanta comes back home. You have to feel pretty good about them taking care of business in Georgia uh, in that second leg as they move into the new season. And then you have the Sounders, who played to a 2-2 draw against CD Olympia. And uh, it was a performance that, if you're a Sounders fan, I'm sure I'm sure Sounders fans were feeling really good heading into the tournament. Just, you know, you win an MLS Cup and you get even stronger in the offseason with some of your signings and you're feeling pretty good. Uh, but then you give up those goals to, to have to settle for a draw. Um, I don't think anyone in Seattle is panicking about where things are. But if anything, they should feel very good about what they saw. Uh, when you look at uh, Jao Paulo, the the designated player, the midfielder for them, he scores the first goal in that in that first leg matchup, and he you see the quality that he brings to that to that Sounders midfield. He brings a bit of a different element um, to that attack, and we've always known the Sounders attack in recent years to just kind of be that just. That, that run and gun counterattacking approach that just, you know, you take advantage of the speed of uh, Jordan Morris and Ladero uh, and Rui Diaz on the counter. And, and But now you have Jao Paulo, someone who can give you a bit of a change of pace and who can help settle things and who can help create things from deeper in midfield. And, and he's, he's, he's got a classy quality to him that 
is very exciting to see on a Sounders team that was already pretty stacked. And now he gives them something different. Uh, and and that, that makes their attack a more versatile attack. And for me, when you look at that and you're talking about who are the favorites in MLS, Seattle was obviously a favorite coming into the season. But now when we get to see Joe Paulo play and you realize, you know what, this guy's the real deal. This guy is as good as Seattle uh, seems to think that he is. And, and, and you know, it's, again, one game, but that one game, it's a very promising debut for him. Uh, obviously, defensively, there's some questions about the Sounders defense and can the Sounders defense take a step forward. Uh, obviously, they, they, they had some changes there. Uh, they said goodbye to Roman Torres and Kim Kihi. Uh, and, you know, how will that defense come together? And, and that's still kind of the big question mark about Seattle. But for right now, after that first leg and after that first match of 2020, you have to say the MLS Cup champions aren't going anywhere. Uh, they're going to be right there in contention once again for some more trophies. And they, they, you can't argue that they are they are the best MLS option to make a deep run in this CONCACAF Champions League. Moving on to some other MLS news not related to the CONCACAF Champions League. The Chicago Fire announced the signing of designated player and midfielder Gaston Jimenez, and uh, it completes what's, what has been a really busy offseason for the Fire. As we know, they, they have a new owner who bought the team uh, back in 2019. They cleaned house, uh, new general manager, new head coach, Rafael Wicke, and now they've turned over the roster and, and, and made some big changes to that. As we know, Bastian Feinsteiger retired, Alexander Katai was traded, and and they were really they were a team that was already in need of of, of several additions, but now uh, between the the signing of Jimenez and also with uh, the teenager Ignacio Aliceda, uh, a couple of big additions for the fire. And now all of a sudden, I'm starting to look at the fire and the pieces that they put in place now. And I don't think they're going to be a terrible team. And and I know that's kind of faint praise, but. For me, I felt I feel like for a while now the Fire have been an underperforming team. They've been a team that just haven't haven't put it together, haven't put a roster together that could really, really compete. And uh, that's why you know you saw Belko Panovic lose his job, and and why Nelson Rodriguez has been moved out of his position. Uh, he's still with the Fire, but he's he's gone over to the business side of things. His his tenure as a as a team builder was not a success not a successful one. And now it's up to Rafael Wiki to, to try to put all these pieces together. And that's the tricky part, because as much as, as Wiki could be a good manager, and I know some people look at the Under-17 World Cup and, and, and his time at the U-17s and say, yeah, you know what, maybe he's not that good of a coach. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to put that one uh, stretch for him as as what decides whether or not he's a good coach. I think now is a good opportunity for him to show what he can do in Chicago with a completely overhauled roster. Now, do I think the Fire are a playoff team now? That's entirely possible. Uh, you know, as recently as a month ago, I would have pegged the Fire to be one of the absolute worst teams in MLS. And even a week ago, I might have I had them toward the bottom. But now with the pieces that are in place, they could do some things. It's really going to come down to the job that Wiki can do uh, in putting that squad together. And it's never easy when a new coach comes in and has all these parts uh, that he has to th- throw together, uh, a, a group that hasn't played together before, uh, and a group that I'm not so sure how much input Wiki had in the building of this team. And uh, he obviously was a late arrival as a coach. 
uh, in the hiring process. Uh, so you so you wonder how he's going to adapt with this group. But again, we're going to see what kind of coach he is. Obviously, his time with the U seventeens wasn't the greatest, but you know that that was a bit of a he, you know he was thrown into that situation. Uh, he he threw himself into that into that situation, and 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 it's always tricky on the U seventeen front. And one and what you can easily point to for anyone who questions Wiki as a as a coaching candidate and what he may or may not do. Listen, the guy he replaced, Velko Panovich, won an under twenty World Cup, right? So. As a coach. Now, he, when he was hired by the fire, everyone was going crazy because, look, hey, look, here's a guy. He just won an under-20 World Cup. He's a highly rated coaching prospect. What did he do? Not much in MLS. He really didn't do well at all. So, obviously, doing well as a youth national team coach clearly does not mean you'll do well as a pro coach. So, why can't it be the other way? Why can't it be, you know, if you struggle as a youth coach, does it necessarily mean you'll struggle as a, as a club coach? And, and again, it's not like Wiki doesn't have experience. He's co- he coached in Europe before, so he has some experience. But again, this is not going to be an easy job for him. If he can turn them into a winner, then all of a sudden you have to say, listen, this guy, this guy knows what he's doing. This guy is a legitimate coach. Elsewhere in MLS, you have FC Cincinnati uh, trying to recover from the Ron Jans debacle. Uh, as you as you know by now, Ron Jantz was has moved on. He stepped down as as head coach uh, amidst all the issues uh, with uh, the accusations of of him using racial slurs. Uh, and now Cincinnati is in cleanup mode. Yoan uh, Damet is the uh, interim head coach again, and they're in the process of, of looking for a long long term coach. And they're still trying to put a team together. And they recently finally announced the signing of CM DeYoung. Uh, the former Ajax player, uh, a, a, the latest addition to a, to a Cincinnati team. That's an interesting patchwork group that ha- they've added some players. They've added, enter- added some interesting players this this winter w- when you talk about Kubo and and Locadia and now De Jong. Some some good attacking pieces, but when you look at the team as a whole. Top to bottom, it's still not a group that inspires a lot of confidence. And still, for me, when I look at the rest of the league and where other teams have, how other teams have approached the building of their squads, um, Cincinnati's still playing catch up. And for my money, I think the two new expansion teams, Miami and Nashville, are already ahead of Cincinnati. And that just shows you what a disaster. 2019 was for Cincinnati and what a disaster their process of putting that team together was. And I know you you have plenty of people who will cop pleas and and, and make excuses for, oh, you know, there was a short turnaround. There was a short timetable. uh, It wasn't an ideal situation. Listen, when it comes down to it, Cincinnati made the decisions that they made. They made the decision not to hire Bruce Arena when they very easily could have hired Bruce Arena to run that team. He could have been their head coach slash general manager. That was a possibility. They went in another direction. Uh, it was Cincinnati's decision to go and trade for Nick Hagland rather than trading for Enrico Parra. Uh, and again, that's another one where you know you have to ask yourself the leadership at the time. What were, were they were they approaching things in a practical way, in an intelligent way? And when it comes down to it, they weren't. They didn't. They didn't build this team in a great way. And it really, you really have to point the finger at Jeff Birding, the team president, who uh, is really at fault for a lot of the issues that the team had in year one, and a lot of issues that they're still 
paying the cost for. And the scary thing is, as much as birding allegedly is no longer as hands-on in the whole process of, of control of running the team as maybe he was in year one, my understanding is that he's still very involved. And, and we're talking about a guy who doesn't know what he's doing. And that's what it comes down to. Like he, he, you know, he may have had success and experience in the NFL realm, but when you're talking about a guy who doesn't know a thing about soccer, being overly involved in soccer things, you're going to end up with a mess. And that's exactly what happened in Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, FC Cincinnati is still cleaning up from that mess of year one. And until birding and until the owners at Cincinnati figure out that they need to make sure the right people are making the decisions, the right people are involved in the processes, and the wrong people are kept out of the processes, Cincinnati's going to continue to make mistakes, mistakes after mistakes. And and you know what? You, you, you don't want... It's unfortunate because Cincinnati had so much momentum coming in with the big crowds and the success in USL, and it just seemed like a, a slam dunk uh, success story coming into MLS. But they have completely botched this, and you just wonder at, at what point will they turn it around, and I just don't think it's going to happen in 2020. Just looking at the roster that they put together, the squad they have, I just don't see it happening. And if it doesn't happen, and if it continues to be a disaster, if they're once again one of the worst teams in MLS in 2020, at that point, the owners in Cincinnati need to ask some really hard questions, and they need to make some really big decisions on who's running that team, because right now, they are, you know, they're, sec they're heading into their second year in MLS, and they are without question... You can argue the league laughingstock. There is no other. I, I, I'm, when I think about it, when I think about who the teams in MLS are, that you would say, okay, this team is a joke. This team is considered a laughingstock in the league circles. I mean, Orlando City obviously hasn't had success. They haven't been to the playoffs yet. Uh, you could kind of point to them as a team that that has let the, the momentum of their early years kind of get away from them. Uh, so they're in that category as well. The Chicago Fire in recent years, actually, uh, in the years under Andrew Houtman, had really transformed into a bit of a joke. Uh, but now, obviously, Houtman sold the team. They have a new owner. They're heading in a new direction. So you kind of wonder what they're going to do next. Cincinnati just feels like a team that's just stuck already. And uh, they're, losing, they're losing an opportunity. And they're losing what was really what was really some real energy there. And you know, I, I just hope they figure it out. I hope they turn things around. But right now, it's it's a hot mess. And it's not about just Ron Jans. It's not about just what you know him and, and the mess that he he made. He is a symptom. He is not the cause. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Cincinnati. But uh, it's not. I, I, I can't imagine there are many Cincinnati fans who are feeling super excited about their team heading into 2020. And that, for me, is unfortunate. Getting away from MLS a little bit, we have to talk about Jermaine Jones and the recent comments that he made in his interview with Sports Illustrated's Grant Wall in an article that clearly raised some eyebrows and ruffled plenty of feathers. Uh, Jermaine Jones has never been one who's shy to speak his mind and to say what he's thinking um, and to say things that other people wouldn't say and other people may agree with, but you know what? He's uh, he's never been shy, and he, he he doesn't hold back, doesn't bite his tongue. Um, so he had some critical uh, things to say about uh, about U.S. soccer, the U.S. national team, uh, former U.S. national team coach Bruce Arena, 
uh, current members of the U.S. national team. Uh, he, he he was all over the map. He uh, he he brought out the he brought out the AK and just sprayed uh, sprayed all over American soccer. And it was it was interesting. It was interesting. Some of the comments uh, that he made and uh, you know him saying that Bruce Arena was the worst coach that he's ever had. Uh, I thought that, that, I thought that was pretty hilarious. Um, just because, I mean, if you're thinking, if you think about it, if you're Jermaine Jones, I mean, who, if, what coach in this world do you hate the most? Uh, do you hate the coach who ran you out of the national team program? Yes. Uh, do you hate the coach who, who beat you and your team in the one, uh, club final you've ever played in, in your career? Yes. Um, uh, would you hate the coach who didn't want to assign you for the LA Galaxy when all you wanted to do was play in LA? Yes, I think I think all those things add up to Bruce Arena, and all those things add up to why <laughs> Jermaine Jones would absolutely despise Bruce Arena. Now, this isn't to say Bruce Arena is infallible. That Bruce Arena doesn't deserve criticism for the way he handled the U.S. national team uh, head coaching job in his second go round, and that isn't to say that Arena shouldn't be considered one of the key people to blame for the U.S. missing the World Cup. That's you know what that goes without saying. We've talked about that. That's already been litigated. He's been found guilty. Bruce Arena, you had your part to play. Uh, for me, I think it's just it's convenient. Um, because we've all known for a long time now that Jermaine Jones is a Jurgen Klinsmann guy. And obviously, with Jurgen Klinsmann's recent uh, departure from Hertha Berlin, it it brought up a lot of the old old memories and a lot of the old storylines uh, about Jurgen Klinsmann and whether or not he was a good coach, whether or not he was a good coach for the U.S. national team. And... Uh, Obviously, if you're Jermaine Jones and, and Jurgen's your guy and he's really, as much as I laid all the things out about why Bruce Arena is someone that your, Jermaine Jones clearly hates and would have a reason in his mind to hate, Jurgen Klinsmann's on the other side of that. Jurgen Klinsmann is a guy that you can understand Jermaine Jones at loving. Jermaine Jones, his World Cup dream was realized thanks to Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh and that will not, you know, if someone helps you realize a dream, you're going to, you know, you're going to feel like you owe him forever. And, and, and from that standpoint, he is a Jurgen soldier and he always will be. And you can kind of understand him sticking up for his old coach, but doesn't mean the things that he said were right. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to sit here and buy the idea that Jurgen, if Jurgen had stuck around, things would have been fine and the U.S. would have qualified. And and as Jurgen likes to tell people, the U.S. could have made it all the way to the World Cup semifinals in 2018 if only Jurgen Klinsmann hadn't been fired. I'm sorry, folks, but I'm calling BS on that. Jermaine, you can be right about Bruce Arena, but doesn't mean you're right about Jurgen Klinsmann. Because when it comes down to it, both coaches had their part to play in the U.S. not making the World Cup. Because while, yes, Bruce Arena had more games, he had eight games to turn it around after the hole that the, the U.S. was in. He had eight games, yes. And he botched that, yes. And he mishandled it at the end, yes. But Bruce Arena stepped into a disastrous mess, and as much as maybe some people want to believe that that wasn't the case, it absolutely was 
the case. That it was a mess. It, it, the the entire locker room environment with the national team was a bit was a bit of a disaster. And does that mean Bruce Arena was the right guy at the moment to clean up Jurgen Klinsmann's mess? No, doesn't mean that. But it doesn't mean that because Bruce Arena failed at cleaning it up that it wasn't actually a mess. And that's where the revisionist history, I mean, is in full bloom here. Because now you're actually going to get, you know, you've gotten people for years who tried to make it, you know, there's clearly some people out there who are Jurgen apologists, Jurgen fans, Jurgen believers, because Jurgen tapped into a certain fan base who loved the things that he said. Because Jurgen Klinsmann would be the first guy to criticize MLS, the first guy to obviously... Uh, try to push players to, to, to the best leagues possible, which, again, you want as a national team coach. You totally understand that. Um, but at the same time, it did none of that made him a good manager. None of, just because he said things you liked someone to say doesn't mean he was good at his job. It doesn't mean he was a good coach. Just like just because Jermaine Jones was a heck of a player for the U.S. national team, his performances at the 2014 World Cup – will will stand the test of time and and for some US fans they're always going to remember him being a beast in the midfield for the US national team as much as that's the case and as much as he will always have that him having that doesn't all of a sudden make every single thing he says legitimate every single opinion he spouts legitimate and and that's where it, it gets a little you know it, when it comes down to it people who love who loved Jurgen or who love the idea of Jurgen Klinsmann are going to look for things that support that, that are going to, that, and, and Jermaine Jones is a big supporter of Jurgen Klinsmann and he always will be. Doesn't mean he's right. Doesn't mean his defenses of Klinsmann are, are legitimate or, you know, they stand the, the truth test because they don't, they don't. When it comes down to it, as we saw now with the recent debacle at Hertha Berlin, Jurgen Klinsmann is not, is not a good coach. He's not a reliable coach. He's an idea guy. Smart, smart, smart guy. Super intelligent guy. You, you want to have him kind of oversee things and give you the ideas that help plant the seeds for something? I, I give you that because he's got that. But in terms of the manager, in terms of the coach, in terms of the tactical acumen, uh, the, 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 the ability to actually lead a team, no. No, that's not him. And I know so you, if you want to go all the way back and say, hey, look, 2006 World Cup, Germany got to the semis of the World Cup with Jurgen as the coach. So what, what, what does that say? Well, again, he also had a coaching staff that really, really helped him. Yogi Lowe was his assistant. And Yogi Lowe, Yogi Lowe is a proven commodity as a very intelligent manager. And as, as we have heard repeatedly from members of the German national team, he was the brains behind that whole operation. So he was really, you could argue the reason why they had the success they even had. Because it's what's funny is it, for those who, who don't have the, the, the good memories, Jürgen Klinsmann was nearly fired as German national team coach. He was, on, he was on shaky ground before that World Cup. He was on shaky ground before the 2006 World Cup. And then the U.S., then, the, then Germany played the U.S. in a friendly in Germany, and they smashed the U.S. And that victory helped solidify Jurgen's place as U.S. as German national team coach heading into that 2006 World Cup. And who was the coach of the U.S. team in that match? Bruce Arena. So actually, 
Jermaine Jones indirectly should be thanking Bruce Arena because Bruce Arena helped make Jurgen's career as a coach. Because you know what? If if if, if Bruce Arena and the U.S. beat Germany or tie Germany in that friendly, Bruce, Jurgen Klinsmann might not even be the 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 Germany coach in the 2006 World Cup. And he and if he's not the coach of Germany in 2006 World Cup, he's never the coach of the U.S. in 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 2014. So. It's interesting when you think about things like that and the butterfly effect. And, and then if you want to look at it that way, then, yes, you can blame Bruce Arena twice over for everything that happened in 2018. But I, I don't know. I think for me, just listening to the, the Jermaine Jones comments, I mean, Jermaine Jones, when it comes down to it, right, I, I, he's, a, he's got a personality. There's no doubt about it. He, he has – there's qualities to him that you love and appreciate for them, the, the, his – the uniqueness, but at the same time, I mean, there's certain things about it that you, when you look at at the behavior and, and and some of his some of the stuff, I mean, you know, you could argue is he the Antonio Brown of American soccer? And for those of you who don't know anything about f- football, Antonio Brown is an NFL wide receiver who, let's just say, has behaved pretty erratically over the past however long six months to a year or however long he's been behaving erratically. Jermaine Jones has had some of that. He's behaved pretty erratically with, with some of his social media stuff and his personal life that's been there for all to see. And it's unfortunate that he puts it out there and he kind of makes you cringe. Some people love it. Some people, the, you know, the TMZ, the TMZ loving part of the world uh, eats that stuff up. But you still can't help but cringe at some of the things you see from Jermaine Jones. Because uh, you know what? You, you, you want to see him do well. He's a family guy. You can tell he loves his kids. He loves his family. Um. But then you see all the kind of unsettling stuff and you're like, Jermaine, take it easy. Like, wh- like what's going on there? So he's not the most stable guy. That, I mean, that's the, that's, the, that's the best way to put it. He's not the most stable guy. So when you see him now lash out with just some of the stuff and he just starts popping off and you're, and you're saying to yourself, okay, you know what? I'm not going to necessarily ignore everything Jermaine Jones says because – for me, I think there's definitely some truth to some of the things that he said, no question. Uh, some of his comments about about the, the structure of coaching in the U.S. in terms of, of what you have to go through to become a coach, there's definitely some things that could be better, no question about it. But, you know, are there players who are part of the U.S. national team make up and set up uh, who shouldn't really be part of the national team? Yeah, of course. And we'll, we'll argue that. And, and that's always been the case. It, no matter who the coaches are, no matter who the team is, there's always players who are getting called up that people will say, why does that guy get called up? And I've been saying it. I, I, I've been on this show and I've, I've said, in, whether in the show or in writing, you know, why, why do, you know, why does Daniel Lovitz keep getting called up? Why does Corey Baird keep getting looks? Uh, and then before that, you could, you could point to other players. Um, so I get that. I get that. So I, I don't have as much, I don't really have a huge problem with Jermaine Jones voicing his opinion about what he feels are questionable call-ups, especially when, and I agree with the idea that, you know what, if a guy is playing in the Bundesliga and he's playing regularly and he's a starter in one of the best leagues in the world, how do you justify not making them a part of the national team uh, when there are other players who are in inferior leagues who are getting the call-ups? And that there is, I, that, I, you know what, for me, I just don't see how you are defend that. And, and okay, it's fine. If, they're, if, they're, if you're talking about a 32, 33-year-old player who, you know what, when you're thinking about it long term, is he going to really be a factor for the next World Cup cycle as opposed to a younger player? I get that. I get that to some degree. But when you look at someone like Timmy Chandler, 
uh, and before before he came back into the picture, someone like Alfredo Morales. I asked I asked Greg Berhalter back in May about this very idea, about the idea of you know what do you say to people when you have situations like this? How do you like when you have players? who are in these bigger leagues, but who aren't necessarily getting looks and who are regulars in the Bundesliga, but can't get a call up. Uh, and, and, you know, Burhalter could point to certain things like, yeah, like an age, like age, an age issue. You know, maybe there are some younger prospects who are maybe aren't in, in as high a level of a league, but who are maybe in a coach's mind, a better long-term prospect. I get that. But we're on a little bit of a tangent here, but I, I, I understand where Jermaine Jones is coming from when it comes to that. When, you know, although it, it does make you cringe a little, because like you're, if you're Tim Ream and you're you know you're sitting in London sipping your tea, and all of a sudden you're just getting shots coming your way, Tim Ream, Tim Ream just yeah, you know, what did he do? Tim Ream is the nicest guy. Uh, should he still be a part of the national team setup? That's obviously up for debate. And and for me, I, I feel like at his age, can you move? Is it time to move on from Tim Ream? I, I see that. I agree with that. But the idea that he never should have been part of the setup. I, I don't know if I go there. Um, and obviously the shots at Bruce Arena, you kind of know what that's about. So you, you take it for what it is. Is Bruce Arena uh, a great coach? When you look at the track record, you can say what you want. You could say, okay, look, is he Pep Guardiola on the tactical side? Is he, you know, is he pretty simple when it comes to how he approaches things? You can you can debate that up and down, and you can argue the fact that the guy doesn't like talking tactics, or and and you can claim that he doesn't know the game really. But I'm sorry, when you look at the results throughout his career, how people still kind of sit here and act like he doesn't know what he's doing, like. You don't have that much success over that long a period of time without having some idea what the heck you're doing. So that, so from that standpoint, uh, you know what? It, I, I didn't like. I don't know. When, when I read the Jermaine Jones comments about Bruce Arena, I was kind of like, it's so obvious what this is about because you're bitter. You're bitter at Bruce Arena. You're bitter at him phasing you out of the national team. When you probably, and I'm sure he absolutely felt like he should still be a part of the national team. I get that. I get, I get it. But I just feel like people should understand where he's coming from when he when he gets into that stuff. Because obviously there are going to be people who don't buy that Bruce Arena's quality as a coach. But I'm sorry, folks. Over time, when you see what he's done, what he's been able to do, what he's been able to, he's been able to win. I mean, he took over an LA Galaxy, right? He took over an LA Galaxy team that was an absolute train wreck. Rude Hulet, who, hey, Rude Hulet, one of the, you know, a legendary player, has the European pedigree. He came as a manager. LA Galaxy was an absolute disaster. The Galaxy were a mess. Bruce Arena took it over, turned them into a dynasty. And you can say all you want about, oh, the money and the Galaxy spent the money. But listen, you can't, there, there are plenty of teams that have had money and haven't won titles. So... The whole idea that you're going to sit here and say Bruce Arena is, is, a, is a crap coach. Did he do a crap job in his second go-round as U.S. national team coach? Absolutely. No doubt about it. Disastrous job. His ego got the better of him. He took things for granted. He took the one opportunity that he wanted so badly for so long, and he took it for granted. And he deserves criticism for that. And he will always deserve criticism for that. But to sit here and look at his career and his track, his resume and say, oh, he's a, he's a terrible coach. Like, come on, Jermaine. Settle down. Because you know what? When, as much as he was part of the worst, 
He had a big part to play in one of the, the most disastrous periods in, in, in the U.S. national team. He also was the coach of the best U.S. men's national team that we have ever seen. And the best World Cup run we've ever seen, the 2002 World Cup team, he put that together. He put that group together. He put Landon Donovan and Demarcus Beasley at 20 years old into that group, and he got them to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. So he deserves a little credit for that. He turned the Galaxy into a dynasty. He won with DC United at the beginning of the MLS era, which is so long ago, it's kind of taken for granted that he did it. And now Bruce Arena is in New England, and he take, he's taken a New England team that was a disaster again taking over a disaster and he has transformed them into a respectable team a good team heading into 2020 so i didn't come into this episode planning to to to, you know go into defend bruce arena mode because the guy definitely deserves his criticisms for some of the things that he's done in his career but yeah like i'm sorry i can't sit here and say that jermaine joe's can just Say the guy had is a terrible coach because he's not. His track record speaks for itself. He's he's been a very good coach for a long time. He's ha- and he, yes, he has some some negatives on his resume, but guess what, folks? There aren't many coaches in the world who don't have some negatives on their resume. So the last thing I'd say is when it comes to Jermaine Jones' comments, particularly about Bruce Arena, I'd say consider consider the source on those because. We're talking, about, we're talking about a guy who has a clear reason to have a grudge against Bruce Arena. So take those, I think, with a grain of salt. Some of the other stuff, I'm with you, Jermaine. I'm with you on, on asking some of those questions. And, and it's good to have former players speak up. It'd be great to have players speak up when they're playing. Obviously, you have to play the political game as a player. You can't, you can't necessarily speak your mind. You can, you, know, you can say some things off the record behind the scenes, as we saw back with the uh, the famous Brian Strauss story uh, about the U.S. national team circa 2013, uh, which, when you want to go that far back, started to kind of maybe paint the early picture on some of the issues of the Jurgen Klinsmann era. But you know, for me, I don't know. I just that, that's what that, that's what I came away from 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 the Jermaine Jones comments. Uh, looking at it, like you know what. It's great to speak your mind. It's great to say some of the things that need to be said. But when you let your personal grudges kind of take you take you into saying some just like just absurd stuff, that's when it, it for me it's a little it's a little much. It's a little much to stomach. But again, again, some people are going to eat it up, and some people who the Jurgen lovers are going to eat it up, the Bruce Arena haters are going to eat it up, and you know what? That's it is what it is. And I'd say above all, I hope I hope. Jermaine Jones gets into coaching uh, in the United States because uh, obviously he, he he pointed to some some real issues that there that exist and you'd like to think that that with what he brings to the table in terms of his experience as a player and, and his his view on things you want to you want to see him be a part of the part of the solution right because it's easy to complain it's easy to criticize but you know let's see what you do as a coach uh, and and I'm curious to see I'm curious to see if Jermaine Jones can make it work as a coach because. You know, it's a lot easier said than done. It's 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 not so so it's not so easy to make that transition from from pro player top top pro player to effective quality coach. And uh, you know, we'll see what he can do if he can get that opportunity. And you know, hopefully, hopefully he gets that opportunity. And I know some people will say, oh, you know, he'll price you know be blackballed now because he's made these comments and he's gone after American soccer royalty. Um. I don't know about that. You know what? Listen, if he can do the job, he'll get the opportunity. Look at Eric Winalda. Uh, you know, he's talking about when you want to talk about outspoken people who've, who've burned bridges and, and made enemies. 
He's uh, he's currently the coach of Las Vegas. He's gotten opportunities as a coach, and and he's really put in a lot of hard work. Um, despite you know some people probably not being huge fans of Eric Winalda as a person, and Jermaine Jones may, maybe he'll have to deal deal with some of that. But if you're a good coach and you're a hard worker, your work will hopefully uh, take you where you deserve to go. And and uh, and I, I wish Jermaine Jones luck there because. Uh, you know what? When it comes down to it, if he has half the coaching career, Bruce Arena, I think he'll be pretty happy, even though uh, he clearly doesn't rate Bruce Arena much as a coach. Moving away from the Jermaine Jones topic, uh, onto Americans abroad, and, and there's definitely some players I wanted to talk about uh, based on on some of the recent performances. Uh, we'll start with John Brooks, who is back in the starting lineup for Wolfsburg. Uh, he had a really good performance for them against uh, Mainz in their recent victory. That's three starts in a row now for Brooks after uh, he had a pair of matches uh, stuck on the bench. And you started to wonder, you know, it, was he going to get his starting job back? And and it was not a it was not an injury issue. It was he was he was just benched, and that was really like a first for him. Uh, since he broke through as a regular starter, um, I want to say five, six years ago. So that's why it definitely kind of was, it raised some eyebrows uh, when he was on the bench. But now he's back in the starting lineup for Wolfsburg. They've started to put some good results together. And you hope that he can now build on that heading into the March the March uh, U.S. national team friendlies because he is such an important part of of. Greg Berhalter's plans and this is a big year for the U.S. national team when you talk about the Nations League in the summer and then World Cup qualifying in the second half of the year and a healthy uh, John Brooks is huge for the U.S. men's national team setup because he is by a mile not I don't want to say by a mile but by a good margin he is the best center back in the U.S. national team pool and if he uh, obviously with his injury history it's always been tough to kind of rely on him um but he is, when healthy, he's, he is so key to the U.S. defense. And, and I think him and Aaron Long, as I've said before, uh, really form a, a good partnership in center in, in the center of the U.S. defense. And, and I'm sure if you're Greg Berhalter, you're feeling pretty good about the fact that he is back starting with Wolfsburg and starting to play well again. Because when he's on his game, he can be a dominant defender, as we as U.S. national team fans will remember back, uh, back with the Copa America Centenario when he was one of the best players in that tournament. Another player who has not been with the U.S. national team recently, but who should get a look in the near future is Andrea Novakovic, the uh, young American forward who uh, who did earn some call-ups under Dave Sarikin back in 2018, uh, but who had not been called up since uh, and actually didn't get much playing time under Sarikin. Uh, he is now playing in Italy. He is in Serie B with Frosinone. Uh, a team that's currently in second place in Serie B, so they're actually in position for promotion to Serie A, and and Novakovic has been a regular starter there now, um, and he scored a, he scored a goal and, and had an assist in a, in a big win for them. And uh, Novakovic is an interesting one because he has he's obviously been on the radar with the U.S. national team on the youth national team levels, and and you know he he had his his seasons playing well in the Netherlands uh, in recent years, but for whatever reason, Reading he he couldn't break through at Reading, who uh, who he was on the books for the uh, the English club, and and he finally moved on from Reading and went to Italy and, and Serie B. There there haven't been many Americans to go uh, the Serie B route, uh, but Novakovic saw it as an opportunity to improve his game and, and earn some regular playing time and he's done that and not only is he playing regularly he's playing regularly on a team that's playing very well and is in position to potentially be promoted to, to Serie A and when you think about the forwards the the U.S. national team forward pool uh, 
Greg Berhalter doesn't really have the luxury of not looking at players who are playing regularly in Europe. And, and right now, when you think about American forwards in Europe, how many American forwards are starting regularly in Europe? Not many. Josh Sargent isn't. Um, Haji Wright has been in and out in the, in the Netherlands. There, there just aren't many strikers in general. The pool is very thin at striker. So I think for me, if I'm, if I'm Berhalter, I have to give Novakovic a look because you wonder how he's developed, how he's continued to grow as a player. And also playing in Italy, uh, where, you know, d- def- defending is, is, is so such an emphasis and where chances are much tougher to come by. That was kind of one of the knocks of Novakovic. He scored a ton of goals in the Netherlands. Uh, first, he played in the, in the second division, and then he and then in the first division in, in the Netherlands, he, he did well there too. And But the question was, well, you know, people score goals in the Netherlands. It's not that, not that impressive, which, you know, I think that's a little... Uh, a little unfair. I mean, there's something to be said for how that goals are easier to come by in the Netherlands. I get that, but to totally write it off, I think that's a mistake as well. So, but hey, now he moves to Italy. He's moved there. It's going to force you to get better as a striker. So, if you're Greg Berhalter, have a look at Novakovic, and I think I have a feeling that that it's a there's a very good opportunity for him to be a part of the March uh, friendlies. Because, again, I think I've mentioned it before, if you're Greg Berhalter and you know your MLS contingent is just starting their seasons, right? They're just starting their MLS seasons. Do you want to bring in – you don't want – I don't think you're, you're going to want to see – you're going to see Berhalter bring in mostly MLS squad. I think he's only going to bring in a few MLS players. Uh, and try to bring in as many European-based players who are playing regularly as he can. And when it comes down to it, realistically speaking, there aren't a ton of Americans playing regularly, starting regularly in Europe. Another American who's starting regularly in Europe is Eric Palmer-Brown, who is currently playing in the Austrian league uh, for Austria-Vienna on loan from Manchester City. And he recently scored the equalizer against Jesse Marsh in Red Bull Salzburg. And he also scored that goal with Jason Kreiss in attendance. And it's pretty clear that Jason Kreiss is looking at Eric Palmer-Brown as a possibility for the Olympic qualifying tournament. And uh, Jason Kreiss, I had a chance to speak to him back in January, and he made it clear then that that he planned on bringing some European-based players to Olympic qualifying. And the reason that that kind of was a headline was because Traditionally, European clubs wouldn't necessarily release players for a tournament that they didn't have to release players for, particularly players who were playing regularly on the club side. So uh, Christ definitely made it sound like he was working with some of these clubs to have some of these players available for the Olympic qualifying tournament. And the fact that he went and saw Palmer Brown play tells me that he believes that he will have him available. And that's huge because as things stand right now, Miles Robinson still has yet to return to action for Atlanta United, and he was going to be, you figure, uh, a big part of the U.S. defense in Olympic qualifying. And obviously with him out, that's a big void. And you do have some other options. You have Mark McKenzie, you have Justin Glad, uh, who are just both part of the U.S. senior camp in January. But Eric Palmer Brown is is a very talented player, a former U-20 captain. He's played uh, in an under-20 World Cup before. And now he's been starting regularly in in the Austrian league, so he has that sharpness, that match sharpness, to to really be able to step in and, and compete in a tournament. So I think that that's that's a great development to see that um, when he made that move to Austria Vienna, you kind of wondered is this is this the right move for him? Is this the right loan? Uh, obviously, he's with Manchester City. They've loaned him around, and and not all of the loan opportunities have been been successful ones. But clearly, the Austria Vienna. Uh, 
loan has worked well for for Palmer Brown. So uh, I I think it's safe to say we will see Palmer Brown in Olympic qualifying, and he is a player who's kind of fallen off the radar. It's easy to forget that he was for a long time one of the highest rated young. Uh, prospects in the pipeline and he's still very much one of the better prospects in the u23 player pool so you know what it is a good chance we'll see him in olympic qualifying and and that could be uh, a, a statement tournament an opportunity for him to reestablish himself as one of the best best young americans in the pool well, that just about wraps it up for this episode of the SBI Show. Uh, apologies for no no guest segment on this episode. Uh, it's just been it's just been a real crazy week, and and trying to figure out who would have been a good fit for this episode. Uh, when it came down to it, I just wanted to touch on so many different topics that I didn't want to make this a super long episode. As I said uh, earlier, uh, the plan is to have three more episodes this week. We'll have an Eastern Conference preview episode, a Western Conference preview episode, and then kind of an overall MLS season preview episode talking awards, talking playoff teams, and other topics. And also in that episode, we'll have other other non-MLS related topics to get into, whether it's U.S. national team, Olympic qualifying, Americans abroad as well. Uh, so definitely stay tuned for those. Uh, I, I'm trying to get us on a, a regular routine again, regular schedule. Obviously, these few weeks before the start of the MLS season have, have been crazy uh, as SBI has ramped up the, the preview coverage. And in case you haven't already, make sure you go to SBI and read all of our MLS season previews. I'd like to think we have the best selection of, of MLS team previews uh, around. Um, we, we've previewed uh, we previewed all 26 teams. I believe the last of the team previews will go up on Tuesday. So... Definitely, uh, after you hear this, go read our team previews if you want to know everything there is to know about the 26 teams in MLS. Uh, And then, obviously, later this week, we'll have more uh, lead up to the start of the season from the best players. We have our power rankings up as well. Uh, Just a a real thorough overall package previewing the 25th anniversary MLS season. So stay tuned for that as well. And uh, definitely thank you for listening. And, and of course... uh, any any suggestions or any recommendations, uh, anything that you like about the show, you don't like, anything you'd like to hear, guests you'd like to have on, let me know. Let us know in the comment section uh, for sure. Uh, feedback is absolutely appreciated and taken into into consideration for sure. Um, for example, the uh, if you you noticed in our in the the separators of the of the topics. Uh, I've adjusted the volume on those thanks to the, the 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 suggestion of one of the listeners, one of our listeners. So thank you for that, and uh, keep the suggestions coming because uh, I'm definitely trying to keep the show rolling and trying to improve it. Uh, and we will get on a regular routine as the MLS season gets rolling on. The dream and the goal will be to have a mon- uh, a Monday and a Friday, or a Tuesday and a Friday episode twice a week, and hopefully get rolling from there. But uh, of course, uh, it's been a little easier said than done uh, to this point, but. One thing's for sure, the goal is this week to get three more episodes in the can to get you all ready for the upcoming MLS season. That's all for now. I'm Ivis Kalarsa. This is the SBI Show.